a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, Troy, uh, again, got you back hosting today. Welcome back. How are you doing, mate? Mate, uh, very well. Thank you very much. And yep. thank you very much for having me back. Oh, I'm having an absolute ball coming back on these podcasts. I look yep. forward to them every day. So, yep. uh, yeah, just before you. just before we got on, we had a little bit of technical difficulties with Troy. <laughs> he can drop uh, bombs on you know an area of one by one, but <laughs> cannot run any technology. It's terrible. But that's Air Force, mate. They're terrible. <laughs> How, how I can uh, deconflict a three-dimensional airspace, or used to, I won't say can now, but uh, used to, but uh, I'm trying to deconflict technology here, and, <laughs> and we're, you and I are on the phone just uh, trying to sort this out, so yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of a, a fuck fight in that way. So. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But as spoken about, mate, today we have a former South Australian police officer. He spent 42 years within the force, and 10 years of that, he was in STAR, which is a special task and rescue group. And during this time, he was involved in an incident in May 1994, and he was shot 14 times. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. How do, how do you, yeah. How do you talk about this? But anyway, let's get him on for a chat and get him to tell his side of the story. Derek McManus, how are you, mate? Matt, great to be here. Mate, appreciate you coming on and giving us your time. Now, mate, we uh, listened to your podcast with the boys at the Combat Ready Podcast, which is, you know, the both boys from there are super cool dudes. I work with them both, uh, Afghanistan on the private contract. And Troy actually worked with, with one of the boys, uh, in uh, two commando, so. No, right. Yeah, so, uh, mate. Okay, I didn't realise that. Yeah, so again, mate, yeah. we listened to your the podcast with the boys and thought with getting shot 14 times, is this not a normal story? Not many people out there get shot 14 times, maybe 50 cent in, in Brooklyn. Gotta, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, but I've got to say no big deal, and I've read your bio, but. Yeah, you know, is it a pickup line to sit there and say to the women at the bar? Because is it a pickup line to sit there and go, I've been shot 14 times and survived, no big deal? 
it's it's one of those things that actually, and I've got to say that I don't have a PTSD around this, which is a very fortunate thing. So I can be really lighthearted. Um, so I've got to be really targeted on the people that I talk to. But you know, when people say, uh, "Oh, you've been in the police force," and they go, "Have you ever shot anybody?" Because that's always their first <laughs> question. And I go, "No." And they say, "Have you been shot?" Oh well, yes. And they say, "Oh, really?" whereabouts or and then it just leads into this long conversation and I lead them into it really really gently revealing little bit by little bit by little bit and it just draws them in deeper and deeper and deeper and I say that I've got several iterations of this conversation which could be you know just the five seconds to somebody I don't want to talk to or the three-day version for that lady that I really <laughs> like the look of. Classic. I like that. I Classic. Like, I like that. So don't don't get me wrong. Uh, I know a lot of Queensland police up here that uh, I won't say like they froth, like no one wants to get shot, but everyone thinks about your durability and, and what you're going to go through. And, and we'll talk about that later on, obviously, in the podcast. But, yeah, uh, yeah you've, you, it's absolutely amazing human Feet of endurance in yeah, the eyes. Yeah, 100%. Mate, so before we get on to that fateful day, let's start right off from the start and uh, figure out where, you know, young Derek was uh, growing up and how he was as a kid. So I uh, was born in Scotland, uh, came out to Australia when I was three, uh, grew up in the northern suburbs of Adelaide, which are uh, renowned to be kind of the badlands these days. Uh, the tough ground where it's low socioeconomic and uh, very much uh, the breeding ground of uh, immigrants from uh, the UK. Yep. Um, and uh, we, my dad moved out of there when we were young and we moved from Elizabeth to Salisbury, which in his eyes was a great improvement when you look at it overall and the, the big umbrella or uh, helicopter view. We really didn't move at all. It was still northern suburbs. <laughs> so that's where I grew up. Uh, and it was good grounding for, for toughness. I was not the tough kid, though. Um, I was the, 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 the wimp. I was the guy who was picked on uh, walking through the, the corridors in um, school. I was a kid who had his, you know, got his head punched every time one of the bullies went past. Oh, so that's where I started. Um, and... Uh, from there, I got the interest in joining the police department, and I don't know exactly why. What year did you move to Australia? Uh, 1962. 1962. As a three-year-old, yeah, obviously. As a three-year-old, so now your audience are really dating me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in regards to the accent, obviously you're coming from Scotland, and it's a very, very, very strong, thick uh, Scottish accent. Obviously, you haven't got it. You haven't got it. Do you par- no, your parents would have? My, uh, my father, quite an insightful man, um, recognised straight off, if we had a Scottish accent, we would not assimilate into Australia easily. Mm. Uh, and so he made sure that we did not have an, a Scottish accent, we had an Australian accent. He still has a very strong Scottish accent, uh, which he is proud of and he doesn't back away from. But, yeah, he made sure I had an Australian one. And, you know, when you're talking about the girls... Um, they all say, why don't you have a Scottish accent? <laughs> I would be so popular now yeah. if I had a Scottish accent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So throughout school, like you obviously said, you were the kid that got picked on, you got the kid, you know, got punched in the face. Did you, have you got any siblings? Uh, yeah, I've got an older brother and a younger sister. And, and where were they throughout all this? Were they, are they, were they similar? or? Um, um, my brother went to a tech 
uh, technical high school. So he went to one where it was more hands-on learning trades. Um, so I was in a different high school to him. So there was no support there. Uh, and my sister is five years younger than me. Mm. Um, and by the time she went to high school, it was a different high school again as well. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And obviously, you know, back then in in, in those days, it's a, it's a different type of bullying, obviously, not not to the extent of how we, you know, how kids deal with things these days on uh, social media and stuff. Um, oh, no, it was very much in your face, physical. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's in a, r- a round circle and <laughs> the, yep. the, the app, oh, far yep. out, I've dealt with those a few yeah. times. Good good times, well, good times. Well, bullying back in those days were people, you know, obviously like you know Maddie and uh, like you know, bullying back in those days was, uh, yeah, you'd, Rock up to school and you wore your backpack on the wrong shoulder and you got a smack in the face. So <laughs> that was that. Yeah, yeah. Character so, building, they call it. <laughs> was it? Can I ask? Was there any like outside of you know work and stuff like that? Was there any particular reason to come to Australia and specifically uh, South Australia? Uh, you um, do. So, you do have a bit of an, a South Australian twang to you. So, oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> You've it's developed that. You've hidden. You've hidden. You're sure you want to UC at some stage, and you've hidden the, <laughs> you've hidden the uh, the Scottish accent because I just picked a Scottish accent from Scots I've worked with because I worked with uh, on the private security contract side of things, or you know a certain person who wore blue face mask and fought for Scotland, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, you've you've hidden that, or or just just overdeveloped it uh, well, but you definitely do have the the South Australian accent. So yeah, the South Australian accent is quite particular for Australia. Uh, when I travel overseas, people have no idea where I come from. I get South African, New Zealand, um, and they start going English, maybe, but rarely do they say Australian. <laughs> so, yeah, there's no real particular reason uh, to come to South Australia other than my grandparents had already come here, so they made that decision. My my parents followed in their footsteps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you, you know, South Australia, far out. Could have chose Brisbane or Sydney. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, South Australia is a hidden little gem, and I don't want to tell you all our secrets, but people mm. come here and they go, oh, Adelaide. Uh, do we want to come here? And then they never leave. Yeah. They just absolutely love it. It's a, it is a beautiful state. It's quiet. There's no two ways about it. It's quiet. Uh, but we have got wineries every corner of our of, of our arena here. Clare Valley, Barossa Valley, Adelaide Hills, McLaren Vale, Coonawarra, uh, and, you know, I keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Oh, now you're talking up, Maddie, and uh, yeah. my. Uh, now now you've got us. Now you've got us. Yeah, you've hooked us right in. So, in in regards to the policing, like becoming a police officer, you're in school. Where are the thoughts coming from? Did you have is there any pre- previous family history within the police, or did you you know did you see an ad on oh. TV, or did you watch Lethal Weapon or something? I don't know. <laughs> well, Starskin Hutch, I should say. <laughs> and even those are three decades after I joined. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I guess the uh, initial interest came from my brother uh, had an interest in it, and my brother was my hero growing up, two years older than me, and he was the tough guy. He was the the guy who would stand his ground and be in fights and back himself everywhere. Uh, He was my hero. He wanted to become a copper, uh, and so I've gone, I want to become a copper as well. Uh, My brother changed his mind and became a butcher, but I couldn't change my mind, so... (laughs) 
Yeah. That's a Good big uh, big change of mind. Yeah. <laughs> Police officer to butcher. <laughs> yeah, um, so, what's the process back then? How, like, how, how did you do it? Did you just rock up to the police station recruits recruiting center and just say, "Mate, oh, where's the application form?" Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there was certain, certainly a, a written examination, but yeah, to be quite honest, I think I failed it, <laughs> um, and they still took me in. Um, I I had a really good. I, I was not a great student at school. Um, in fact, I was a straight failed student. Uh, but I got a really good recommendation from my uh, principal, my headmaster, uh, and he said that anything Derek puts his mind to, Derek is going to be successful at. Uh, schooling is not one of the things that he wanted to be successful at. Um, and basically I got in on the, the strength of that recommendation uh, and I got in and I loved it, just loved it. So that was uh, 1976. How was the training back then? Again, you know, we've had a couple of uh, previous police officers on from Queensland, New South Wales, and obviously during that time, 1970s, 80s, political correctness uh, didn't exist. There was a, there was only two <laughs> there was only two genders back then. And so, how oh, was yeah. how was it during during uh, police academy? Like obviously military Bast- style. Bastardization was something you embraced back then, um, <laughs> and it really was. And you know. Troy mentioned before character building. I think it was Troy that said it. It was. It was character building. Some of it went way too far, and and we have to be you know cognizant of that. Um, but it certainly was character building. It it taught us what we were going to face when we hit the road. Mm. Um, and it, in you know, my eyes, it it deserves a purpose. So, like, I agree with you, Derek. Yeah, there's got to be a balance. I, I think some of the bastardization, uh, as it was described these days. Um, it gave you insights, gave you reasons to step up and reasons to become stronger, um, and then and then it actually became something that uh, endeared you to other people, like the nicknames I had back then. You know, people go, "Oh my God, how'd you put up with that?" And I loved it, absolutely loved it. People these days would be mortified. Give us a couple. Give us a couple. Yeah. I, I <laughs> well, the classic, the really classic is, uh, my name is McManus. Yep. Now, that's M-C-M-A-N-U-S. Anus. Now, the A-N-U-S <laughs> is the bit they focused on. And so that's McManus. I can already see the way this is going. <laughs> oh, yeah. So my nickname down through the academy was McBum. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, it hasn't stuck around. Um, but I really embraced it back then. It was just hilarious. Yeah. And, and it was a term of endearment. It, it in, yeah, everybody had their own nicknames and some of them uh, were not as complimentary as that. Yeah. But they yeah. were for a good purpose and they bonded oh. us together. Yeah, right. So I've got to ask. I've got to ask every uh, former police officer or current police officer that we uh, interview. Did you serve in a country town like Blue Heelers, where every crime was committed, and you're a uniformed police officer? Like, is that a reality? <laughs> so I uh, serving in the country. I've only done uh, short stints in the country, and my short stint in the country six weeks. I'm not sure there was actually a crime committed. I, I was a visiting copper in that country town. I lived in the pub, uh, literally lived in the pub. I had a room in the pub, um, and that's where I spent my time, and, and it was just nothing happened. Went out and played footy with the boys, went and visited people, 
um, yeah, and drove around and got bored. And then I, uh, another time I lived, I worked up on the Aboriginal lands in the northwest of uh, South Australia and the Aboriginal Pitjantjatjara lands. And again, no crimes. Uh, oh, actually, no, my apologies. There were a couple of crimes happening up there. Uh, but nothing like Blue Healers, let me tell you. They have the best life on those shows. They they do. They get paid well too. Not like they've had standard cops. Mate, just before we touch on um, onto the policing side of things, so you finish your academy, uh, you get your badge and your gun. uh, Where you first posted to? Uh, I went out to Para Hills, back to the uh, the Badlands and the northern suburbs. Uh, So Para Hills, and then out to Elizabeth, um, and then. Uh, I did my time walking the beat in the CBD as well. Oh, yeah, right. So how did you find all that? Was there anything uh, crazy happening? Oh, Obviously, you had the bikies back then. Well, they were pretty rife back then too. Oh, let me tell you, you know, back in my day, it was not just the bikies. It was the bodgies and the widgies too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you may not know those terms no, because no, I'm that old. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I don't know it. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no. Nah, sounds sounds like an app on my iPhone. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> uh, so they were just they were just groups. They were like gangs. Yep. Um, the you know, and they they dressed in uniform fashion, not uniforms, but uniform fashion. Uh, and they were you know, they were just gangs of people that got around. And we had police in squads that would go around and. Um, take on their violence with, you know, similar violence and and try to bring them into line. It was back in the the days when, you know, political correctness was not recognised um, and the only way that was being used to deal with these people, there was certainly some negotiation and, and those sorts of things happening, but most of it was. The only way we can stop this, uh, these crime gangs uh, intimidating the public is to be violent back to them. Yeah, right. um, that's which, absolutely yeah. Which nobody agrees with these days. We know it was wrong, uh, and we've certainly uh, moved on from that. But it worked. I don't think it did work because they they just got bigger and stronger. They learned how to avoid us, and it, it really didn't. It's it's like taking on the bikies. You can't win. You know, you can't beat bikies with violence. You have to use other tactics, intelligence, and uh, subversive means of uh, eliminating their ability to operate without actually being violent to them. Yeah, it's gotcha. Just undermining their um, their businesses. Yeah, yeah, right. And there's something obviously us in the military are not used to. We we like to fight fire with fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, it, it even violence in the military, means violence. Yeah. Say that again. You said violence meets violence. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there is a place for it. Everybody, you know, particularly what's happening in um, the Ukraine at the moment, somebody has to stand up mm. and hold people to account for their behaviours. And certainly we can't just sit back and go, oh, let's have a good chat about this. Um, so there's a place for it, but there's also a place for diplomacy. And uh, and it's the old story: the the pen is mightier than the sword when it all comes to to the end. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, can, we can go in physically violently, uh, but somebody behind the scenes is going to sign a peace treaty or or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, Matty and I have been uh, bodyguards to some fairly highly profile 
uh, Hollywood couples and stuff like that, as well as obviously uh, Hollywood sort of things. Um, when you talk about groups, yeah, that's Maddie sort of things. But yeah, you can't always carry a sidearm on you and you can't always shoot someone in the face. So yeah, definitely no. agree with what you're saying. Yeah, and we avoid more physical pain ourselves if we're able to avoid that that conflict. And certainly when I was in Star Creek, you know, that's what our job was. There was a violent incident happening out there. We were the first responders to it. Mm, yeah, exactly. So you spend uh, about 14 years as a general duties police officer, and during that time, did you want to do any, like, extracurricular training or uh, was there anything significant that happened during your career? You know, did anyone run at you with a knife or I don't know? <laughs> I've had some very interesting times in my career. Um, I've had people run at me with a knife. Uh, I've had people, you know, very early on in my career, probably nine months after graduating. So this is a guy, 20 years old, given a gun and a badge and really having no idea what to do with it. Um, I was always proactive in safety, though. Um, Back in the day when I first graduated, um, we had a 38 Browning, which was used in World War II. Yeah. Um, and literally, and, and I mean that, it was, that's the, the quality of the firearm we had. Uh, we didn't have a holster because we had, um, uh, we didn't have exposed firearms then. They were concealed. And most of it we put in our thigh pocket and had, you know, an, a concealed holster in there. And it was a pain in the neck. Uh, most people left their pistols uh, in the glove box and, you know, if they needed them, they'd come back to them. We rarely needed them back in the day. Uh, but I always had mine on me. I even got a shoulder holster to put under my shirt at different times just so that I always had it there if I needed it. Uh, I had an incident um, back in 1980. Uh, where uh, a guy had tried to steal a car with a sawn-off 303. We did a search of the area, came across him walking along the streets. He was absolutely maggoted, you know, um, drugs and alcohol off his head. Uh, We've come across him. I've come out of the car, dropped down to one knee, raised my pistol, which I had on me. No other copper had a pistol with him at that time. Um, And I challenged this guy. He started lifting this sawn-off 303, and I was making this decision, when do I, what do I? And I'm just overwhelmed, just absolutely petrified uh, and not thinking clearly. Fortunately, he just dropped the pistol, the rifle um, and we arrested him. Oh, shit. Um, and then throughout my career, there was, you know, other little bits and pieces. But in 19, and I'm just trying to get the, the 87, 1987, uh, I was on patrol with a partner of mine. Uh, and we we're out on general patrols, 20 past midnight uh, at the Jeps Cross Hotel, came across a car with a couple of people in it, and I'll make this story as short as I can. Good it's on, a mate. really great story when I get to elaborate on it, <laughs> but I'll make it as short as I can this time. Um, came across this car, two druggies. They had drugs on the centre console. We got them out of the car to search the car for more drugs. When we got them out of the car, a little bit of a, a scuffle ensued. We got into a wrestling match with the male offender when he pulled out a pistol and pointed it at my partner's chest and started pulling the trigger. 
but the and you'll appreciate this and most of your listeners will appreciate this the gun was malfunctioning it would not fire on double action it would only fire on single action so the hammer had to be pulled back before it would fire um and so he's pointed at my partner's chest started pulling the trigger uh, and it was broken, so it didn't operate. We got into the wrestling match. While we're wrestling, uh, he's calling out to his girlfriend, cock the gun, cock the gun. She's reached over, pulled the hammer back, so it's now operational. But as we're in this scuffling match, I've slipped my thumb between the hammer and the gun, held the hammer back, obviously so that it couldn't mm. fire. We continued to wrestle for about another minute, two minutes, and then other balls arrived and he uh, he gave up the fight. Um, so I've certainly had my exposure to firearms incidents before I went into Star Group, and then once in Star Group, there are other confrontations yeah. we had. Far out. What, what a four, 14 years of just <laughs> far out. <laughs> it's an exciting story. Yeah, Sorry. Definitely. Sorry for being too quiet to, through that. I'm just sitting there on the edge of my seat just going, holy I know. What's shit. next? He's putting his thumb between the <laughs> – to stop the firing, the, the hammer pi- from. I'm just picturing like the old style revolver, which yeah. has double action to it. Oh, like other other pistols have double actions. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah. Well, this was a, this was a, a semi-automatic. I can't offhand. I can't remember the type of weapon it was. Oh. Um, but it was semi-automatic with a, a hammer. Yeah, right. No, I'm sitting there and, yeah, you know, to try and put it in, you know, like you said, try and put it in perspective of the listeners. You're fighting for your life. It's that fight or flight side of things and it goes between your brain and, but you're just going, no, I'm just going to do this. And you just jam oh, yeah. your hand in there and, and then just. Uh, it's it's like, something it's yeah. something you'd see in one of those modern day, you know, those combative uh, is, instructors, it, those gimmick ones. Exactly. It's, but it's you did for real. It's something, it's, something, it's something out of a movie that <laughs> yeah. you've done for real. John Wick. If from my perspective, this is what your podcast is all about, preparing the people who are listening uh, so that they can operate better in the environment where there are dangers. Um, this idea of putting my thumb between the hammer and the gun didn't come to me in the moment. This was things that we discussed in the office where – we didn't get bogged down and overwhelmed by things that are happening, but we would play hypotheticals. If you got into this situation, what would you do in that? What would you do here? How would you handle this? Uh, and one of the situations that was thrown up one night, somebody said, if you got into a wrestling match with somebody with a gun, uh, how would you disarm it? And, you know, we went through all the stupid things like, oh, well, you see in the cartoons, just stick your finger in the end and it can't go <laughs> off, you know. So we, it, it was that light-hearted a discussion. But then it, you know, it morphs into the serious side of it as well. And one of the guys did say, well, if you get into a wrestling match, so long as you hold the hammer back, the gun, gun cannot be fired. And it was in the midst of this fight when the hammer was pulled back, I've just gone, oh, I remember having that conversation. Yeah, just put my finger, my thumb there, um, and it came to it. So this is about taking conscious responsibility for the environment we're operating in and saying, what can I anticipate and how could I respond to it? That's just uh, <laughs> incredible. Hopefully no one did put their finger in the end of a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, yeah. um, 
I want I want to see some of the movie uh, reenactions where they strip the slide off the top and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, where yeah. they do, they do a backflip. Like, is that is that a reality? Like, uh, I don't think so. No, personally. It's definitely not. <laughs> oh, you know, the I mean, all those sorts of things are possible so long as you train that action three thousand mm. times before. You know, it, it's all that. Yeah. It's possible, yeah. but only, mainly in movies. Yeah. Exactly. So moving forward, mate, um, 1990. Now, STAR, which is Special Task and Rescue Group, they were formed in uh, 1978, first uh, called Star Force, which <laughs> sounds very uh, spacey. And then I obviously, love that. Name, <laughs> yeah, Star Force. And then obviously they changed their name to Star Group down the track. Where, did you have any involvement with um, STAR before we obviously, as a GD? Before you went no, there, no, nothing. No. Did you see them cruising around, like long hair um, and Oakleys I, I on their heads? I didn't see them cruising around. I didn't have a hell of a lot of uh, knowledge of them. In actual fact, I was uh, bored with being a GD um, and looking to get out of the police force. And this oh, no will tell way. you how old I am. Uh, I was looking at advertisements for jobs in the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing online What's back a, in the day. Newspaper? What's that? <laughs> and it was broadsheet. It's that really big one. Um, but I was looking at uh, jobs to to find something that was going to be of interest. Yeah, right. And somebody else actually said to me, why don't you become a star? And I couldn't find anything else. So I've gone, it sounds like an interesting job. I really enjoy the activity, the challenge, the, the physicality of it all. And I've gone, yeah, I'll have a crack at that. And yep. it just became my passion. Yep. I absolutely loved operating in that environment. Of course. So at that stage, you just obviously asked your superiors, I want to join STAR, I'll give it a crack, put your application in, and what's, what's the process? Well, let me tell you, if only it was that easy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even just uh, putting your application in, it's not about getting a, a recommendation from your direct supervisor. It had to go up two, three levels, so you had to be – uh, a, a police officer who was of good reputation and good performance that you were noticed by people two, three above you and you had to get a recommendation from them. Uh, once you put in that recommendation and you got to interview, it became an interview with four um, commissioned officers and a psychologist. Uh, you had to do a one-day physical test you had to do a uh, an individual psych test. Uh, once you got through all of that, and that's nightmarishly hard to that point, that got you onto the three-day pre-selection course, mm -hmm. which is like the SAS selection course. There's this three months. Ours is three days. Yep. Um, some of the SAS boys say that ours is very hard as well. It just doesn't go for as long. But over my three days, I got... I think six hours allocated to sleep. The rest of the time was just hard push, uh, physical, mental, emotional drive. Uh, the idea was to wear you down, to be so exhausted that you couldn't second guess yourself. Mm. Everything you did was just your second nature, what you did when you're purely exhausted, when you're completely overwhelmed. Um, and it was then that the testing and assessment actually started. Yep. Uh, so that's just like a reinforcement cycle. So you finish your three days and then you go on a, a, a training cycle to become a star officer. Um, what, what does that training involve? Obviously CQB, medical? Um, yeah, so, you know, back to the, 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 the selection course. Of the selection course, there are generally 16 people on that selection course. 
Um, and generally about 13 or 14 people will finish the selection course, uh, but it may only be two people that pass it, even though people finish it. So yep. once we finish that, then we go on to the training. Um, and, yeah, that's CQB, uh, very little medical. We in Staris um, have a broader brief than most of the um, special operations units around Australia because we did VIP security, we did uh, helicopter operations, we did cave rescue, mine rescue, cliff rescue, uh, as well as diving as well. So, you know, I've got the full gamut um, of training in front of me. We do a, a three-month training course that we need to pass, and when we pass that, then you are accepted to going into being operational. Um, I was very fortunate that... Two years after being in, I actually got selected to go away to Swanbourne uh, and train with the SAS uh, in counterterrorism uh, for four weeks. And as much as my dive course was harder than my starry pre-selection course, the pre-selection course was a nightmare. When I got over to the SAS, that was just another level, another level above uh, what I'd already done. Sounds pretty extensive. Very, yeah, very absolutely. They, they gave Staris and, and the special ops um, sections around Australia uh, given more resources, more training than any other section uh, in any place. In Staris, uh, we had a four-week cycle, and one week of that four-week cycle was pure training. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you finish all your training, all right. and then uh, what, are you, what are you given? Uh, another? Uh, yeah, I'll come down. Whoop. Thank you. Another another patch on your shoulder, or uh, no? Uh, we're new badge. Uh, we in Staris, we had a, a different uniform. Essentially, when we were operational, yep. we had a different uniform. The majority of the time, we we're wearing just the normal police uniform, uh, but no distinctive uh, insignia to say that we're Star Group. Um, oh, mind you, when I passed the dive course, uh, I did get seahorses to put onto my collar. Uh, and if you think of a priest who wears crosses on his uh, collars, that's what our, that's where we put our seahorses. Uh, people who did the uh, helicopter um, course had a uh, a half wing on their chest, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah, right. Far out, Troy. You uh, sorry, sorry, Derek. Troy, you gotta go for a piss, Troy. <laughs> You just sent me a text. I <laughs> just go, mate. Yeah, no, you're right. We I, was can, we... That. I was trying to do that covertly. <laughs> that doesn't matter. No, we'll leave this <laughs> in, so we'll, we'll leave it in. You, Let's you keep going. We'll keep, keep going. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, embarrassing me. Uh, I'm trying to do the covert thing from a different location, uh, you know, just having a coffee and uh, – Yeah, I've, I've got one now too. Um, yeah, so you've you finished training, you um, – Become a star officer. How many guys are in this unit? Uh, just as in perspective for, for our listeners, even for myself, I've got no idea. How big is the SA police back then and how big uh, was the, the, the star is at that stage as well? The SA police would have been uh, 3,000 people uh, at that time. Um, so we're pretty small by comparison to Eastern Seaboard. Uh, probably even Perth is bigger than us. Um, Tasmania is not as big as us. I'd like to throw it out. We're bigger than somebody. Um, but we had 3,000, and Starry's at that time was 58 members. Um, and and that is bigger than most special operations areas 
in Australia. Most special operations areas are around about 30 members because that's what the federal government fund for us. Yep. Uh, South Australia decided to throw extra resources at it um, and extend our brief from counterterrorism, high risk uh, arrest to uh, VIP security, cliff rescue, cave rescue, mine rescue, helicopter and diving operations. Yeah, right. So how, how was the operational tempo, especially even just for the general police and Staris? Because just looking at the population numbers of 1990 for Adelaide, you got 1 million people and only 3,000-ish police officers. Would have been uh, quite a workload. Well, back in 1990, back in the day um, when I was operational as a copper, it was pretty slow, to be quite oh, honest. Oh, was it? No way. Yeah. Uh, it was not unheard of on a Sunday afternoon to go around and visit my parents. And I can say this to you now, um, knowing that I'm not in the police force, I can't be held accountable for my actions anymore. Uh, But on a Sunday afternoon, uh, we would meet as a patrol team at my parents' place and go out the back and play eight ball. You know, it was pretty good back in the day. It was pretty relaxed. Uh, On night shift, it was nothing for the passenger to be a sound asleep uh, in the passenger seat. Um, these days, completely different. Uh, but these days, completely different. The pressure is on from woe to go, uh, yeah. from, from go to woe, sorry, um, and and uh, just completely bashed the whole time, going job to job to job to job. There is very little downtime these days. Yeah, right, far out. Um, during your time as a star officer, you know, you joined 1990 as a star. You've obviously had heaps of pro- previous experience as a GD, you know, putting your finger between the firing pin and, you know, uh, hammer. Yeah, did you get – what was your first incident or call out to, you know, your first big star job? Do you know, I can't actually remember my first big star job. Uh, I know the first one that I missed out on. Yeah. Um, the first one that I missed out on uh, was probably one of the bigger jobs apart from the one that I created. Um, one of the bigger jobs that Starry's had. And it was a guy over on the west coast of South Australia who uh, had got off his face on drugs and rifle in each hand, heading towards town, just shooting. You know, it would, sounded like the scene from a Wild West movie. Um, and our team was delegated to go. Uh, we were going across there in helicopter and there was room enough for the helicopter for everybody on our team except one. Yeah, right. And I was the youngest, the newest on the team. Kicked off. So I got left behind. Uh, And that was the first job where uh, Starry's have actually gone out um, and actually needed to shoot someone. Um, And he was just walking towards police, walking towards the town, um, letting shots off. They tried to negotiate it with him. He was so high on drugs he wasn't hearing a thing. Um, And one of the, uh, the members had to... Uh, shoot him, he was shot in the hip and then arrested and, and taken to jail. I, that, I desperately, desperately wanted to be on that job, but that's a big one that I missed out on. Yeah. Do you know, I actually do think it's pretty cool. Um, I I enjoyed being in that environment. I enjoyed taking on those challenges, and I do see it as a pretty cool time in my life. Um, but I, I put it into perspective that I was dealing with real danger. I acknowledge it was real danger. I never disregard the risk or the danger, but then find ways to manage it. And that's, you know, essentially what we all try to do. But it is about keeping the perspective of it's a dangerous environment 
as much as, but I chose to be in there. So I had to be enjoying it because if you're not enjoying the environment you're operating in, that's when you're going to go down with mental health issues. And if you don't enjoy that environment, go and find something else you want to do. Like people say, oh, you know, what else would I do? I've been in this environment. I should be tough and strong. I know people that leave the police department and go and become accountants. And and if that's what they enjoy doing, then that's sensational because I now run my own business and I need someone who is passionate about being an accountant. Mm. And if you're passionate about doing what you want to do, you know, or whatever you are doing, if you're passionate about it, that's when you're in your, your happiest environment. I understand exactly. that completely. Exactly. Now, during your time as a star uh, operator, you did a bit of training, extracurricular training, you know, sniper training, uh, tactical driving, counterterrorism, and uh, close protection. And just touching on the close protection, 1992, uh, as we all know, the Queen has now passed away. And in 1992, you got to look after the Queen. I did. And, and that sits out as a, a highlight of my career. Um, we were the close quarter protection for the Queen. She had a team which went everywhere with her, uh, and I was more in the the forward scouting party and then uh, the crowd control side of it, but there was her close team and then us. Um, And it just, you know, it it was just sensational. Yeah, yeah, far out. and you guys would appreciate it, but the detailed planning, the forecasting, the uh, premises searching weeks beforehand and then maintaining the security and, and all that sort of stuff, it, it's just phenomenal, the level of planning and detail that goes into it. Yeah, exactly, especially for the Queen too. Like that's, you know, oh, she's, yeah. she's just passed away. And, you know, again, for us, for the oath of allegiance in the military, you either, you know, swear the oath to the Queen or your God, um, so it's a, it's a big thing for us. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so this is where it gets interesting. You know, you spend. <laughs> this, is, this, <laughs> is part, this is the part. This is the part I want. Where I want. This is yeah. This like... is fifty cent. Get rich or die trying. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Fifty cent only yeah. got nine shots. You got nine. Yeah. What a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I just want to put it in context. I mean, we've just all been very lighthearted about fifty cent and getting shot. Yeah. I want to put it in context. Somebody who gets shot once, it's a massive psychological, physical trauma. Yeah. Somebody who has a bullet coming past their ear and they look at their mortality, it is significant psychological as well as physical effect. So as much as I can be lighthearted, I'm very, very fortunate in that way. And we will continue to be lighthearted here. Yeah, of course, of course. Put it in context that I don't disregard the effect that it could have on someone else who's not as fortunate as I am. Yeah, no, exactly, mate. We're quite familiar with uh, that, that side of the world and um, especially most of our listeners have dealt with a lot of this type of stuff. So May the 3rd, 1994, um, you guys are carrying out an arrest warrant on, uh, I'm sorry, Tony Grosser, Grosser? Grosser. Grosser, yeah. Yep, uh, he, after you failed to reattend court. Uh, mate, run us through this scenario and day. Okay, so um, this was the third time that I'd actually interacted with uh, the offender. Um, On the first case, uh, he was being investigated for uh, fraud matters um, and has never had any offences of violence or or anything else like that. Uh, But in this fraud matter, 
and remember, we're talking 30 years ago, probably 35 years ago for the initial uh, fraud investigation. The uh, country detectives back then, um, as we've said, the country town's pretty sleepy. Um, the country detectives back then would get on the phone and they'd go, hey, we need to talk to you, and this is what they did for, for Grosser. Uh, hey, we need to talk to you uh, about this matter. I want you to come into the police station. He's gone, no, I'm not coming into the police station. They said, oh, well, okay, I guess we'll have to come out to your place. Uh, and he responded by, any cop who comes out to my place is going to get shot. Mm-hmm. So we had a hint that he could be violent. You know, we sometimes take a while to take those hints, but we had this hint. So on that occasion, I, as part of a, a team, uh, did the leopard crawl, belly crawl through the paddocks of his farm at that stage, uh, got up to the house, listening for him, loading weapons and preparing and all that sort of stuff. He did nothing. We took his firearms off of him. Uh, we had a second incident with him, uh, and it was very similar type, just a, uh, a possible violent interaction always in the back of the mind that he had threatened to, to shoot police. Uh, and then on this third occasion, he had failed to turn up at court and uh, his partner, his de facto, had rung up uh, the courts and saying, Tony can't come into court today because he's in the New York hospital. Now, we got a hint that they were probably lying because there is no New York hospital. Um, so that was a hint that maybe they were telling lies. He uh, was probably in the medical clinic, but when she said hospital, alarm bells went up, and uh, so they issued a warrant to arrest him. We went there. There were four other members of Star Group, and there was one guy with a video camera. So check out my website. Check out YouTube. Yeah, you have seen it. Um, Watch it. And yeah, and that video was there of us approaching the house. Yeah, which we'll definitely put out to all our listeners. We'll add it up on our socials so uh, everyone can get the full experience. Yeah, yeah, great. So um, you hear us approaching the house and knocking on the front door and calling out that we want to speak to him. Uh, and then you hear him shooting at me and and the distinction between his 7.62 uh, SKK, him shooting at me, and then me responding back with my 9mm, is like he's shooting bang, bang, bang. And me shooting back with my pistol, it's like pop, 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 pop. Uh, it really is quite distinct. And then you hear me calling out to the guys, I'm hit, I'm hit. So I was well aware of what was going on eventually. Uh, And I say eventually, it took mere seconds for me to become aware of it. But that process of me becoming aware of it, I went through a process where time seemed to slow down and everything happened in real slow motion. Like when I first started getting shot, I was walking up to this glass sliding door to see whether we could make an entry, which was going to be uh, more effective, more efficient and safer than what we had planned. Um, You know, you'll appreciate that you're always looking for a secondary Mm. entry point. So sure, this potential went down to check it out. As I approached it, um, I'm approaching the glass sliding door. He starts shooting. I don't realise, I don't feel the impact. I don't feel the pain. All I know is I'm falling to the ground and I'm just cursing myself. How could I possibly be falling? I'm a very particular, very uh, safe, very focused uh, star group, highly trained operative. How could I be falling? And as I was falling, you know, and this is obviously in slow motion, I've looked at the sliding door and suddenly there's small round holes that weren't there before. And then I hear the sound of gunfire somewhere in the distance behind it. 
still haven't felt any pain, still haven't felt any uh, impact on my body. But as I'm falling, cursing myself, and I'll be so stupid, I see these, I hear the sound, and then I start rationalizing to myself, Derek, don't be too hard on yourself because if you're getting shot, it's you know quite acceptable to fall over. And that's literally what went through my mind. I, I fell to the ground, onto my back, feet pointing in the direction the bullets are coming from, head facing away, um, and time slowed down just to this other degree. Two bullets hit my left thigh, and these are the only two bullets I can remember hitting me. Um, and it seemed to take these two bullets 30 seconds to hit me. Yeah, right. A shock wave to go up through my body, all the way through to the top of my head, and then come back down again because they're hitting me in the thigh and that shock wave is just pushing up. The second bullet hits and it's that shock wave up, shock wave back down. Seemingly 30 seconds. 18 bullets were fired in less than five seconds. These two alone seem to take 30 seconds. Um, and during this 30 seconds, I'm abusing myself again. How can I be so stupid as just to lie here and accept being shot? Um, I knew I needed to fire back. I already had my pistol in my hand, a nine millimeter pistol in my hand. Um, and as I've lined up to fire back at him, um, I couldn't see him. All I could hear was where the sound of gunfire was coming from. Um, you'll appreciate that the sun was behind me. Inside the house was dark, so that door just became a mirror mm. uh, and I couldn't see through it and there were curtains on the other side. Um, and so I was just firing in the direction of where the bullets are coming from. But before I took that first shot and return fire, um, I realised I'm firing back along the length of my body and my feet are at the other end of my legs and when I'm lying on my back, my feet are pointing up and I knew that I just needed to get my upper body up so that I would shoot over the top of my feet. But I've got the flak vest on, I've got weaponry, I've got equipment, and as I lift my upper body up, my feet come up to counterbalance. And the thought that ran through my head before I pulled that trigger on that first shot was I better not shoot myself in the foot because <laughs> the guys at work would give me shit for the rest of my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> life. And that literally was the thought that ran through my mind. Um, it didn't stop me. It didn't, and, and you know, when you listen to the video, you, you'll hear you know, him firing and me returning fire happens in that space of time. But when we are well prepared for what we can realistically expect to encounter and we prepare physically as well as mentally and emotionally, yep. then we can sometimes have thoughts outside the square and we've all experienced it. We can be focused on many, many different things and then when we need to, we are right there and have thoughts outside the square while still doing everything we need to do. Yeah. So when I fired, he stopped. I then rolled to my right a couple of times and and there's lots of other interesting stories within the bits that I'm going to skip over here. Yeah. I've gone around the corner. Uh, I've leant against the wall to try and gather. Um, no, let me just go back a, a step. So I've got some massive injuries. I've been hit 14 times. He, he fired 18 times. I'm hit 14 times. Uh, one bullet went through my left forearm, broke the radial, of the radius in, in two places, uh, severed the radial artery. Um, I was lying on the ground for three hours with a severed artery. If you can get your head around Yeah, that. definitely. Um, how, like, how, how, does, how, does, how does that stop bleeding? Uh, well, the this doctors is... don't know why. Um, oh, actually, really interesting little story here. Uh, the doctors can't tell me why. Uh, for some reason, it just went into fibrillation at both ends of the artery and closed off itself. 
Um, and it doesn't just didn't just happen to me. It happens to other people at yep. different times. And I've asked many, many doctors, why does this happen? They go, well, we don't know. Um, now, I was hit 14 times. I, I talked to schools. I talked to uh, people in finance and all sorts of stuff and, and spoken to the fighter pilots and the RAAF. But it's children that generally have the greatest questions and the greatest insights. And this one kid about three months ago came to me and said, do you reckon that you stopped bleeding from that artery because you had so many other injuries in you that there wasn't as much pressure going through the artery and it just closed off? Far out. And I've gone, shit, do you know there is more relevance in that than anything I've ever heard? Uh, and, it, and it could be just exactly that. So, so then comical side of Derek kicked in and this is that hypothetical sticky finger in the end of the gun type stuff, and I've gone, so... If somebody gets a severed artery, just stab them in many other places in their body and it'll stop bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> anyway. Far out. Well, far out. That's a pretty good question, though, from a kid. Doogie has oh, MD. Yeah. Uh, that insight of do you reckon there were so many injuries that the pressure has decreased and that's what stopped it bleeding? It's just gone. Far it's out. like a light bulb moment and it was just Dang. brilliant. That's good. But anyway, uh, I've got uh, a piece of shrapnel on my right wrist. Uh, and that as well, severed an artery, the ulnar artery in my right wrist. Uh, but that stayed in there and blocked it, fortunately. Two bullets in my stomach. One went across my small intestine, severed it several times. I lost 30 centimetres of small intestine. One went uh, bullet went down deep into my large intestine, lost 15 centimetres of large intestine. Um, two bullets hit my uh, left thigh, missed the femoral artery by the width of a piece of paper, and those are the words of the doctor that treated me. Um, I lost probably about 30% of the muscle capacity in my left thigh. Um, three bullets or bits of shrapnel just skipped across the back of my left calf. Uh, one bullet went through my right Achilles tendon, took out 80% of the thickness of my Achilles tendon for about an inch, inch and a half. Yep. Um, and as I sit here today and, and I run around and ride my bike and do everything else, I've still only got 20% of the thickness of my Achilles tendon still holding together. Um, and spoiler alert for your, your audience, even 20% of my Achilles tendon, I went back to Star Group. I went fully operational, um, sprinting, jumping, climbing in and out of the helicopter, fully operational, no restrictions, with 20% of my Achilles tendon. So when people get injuries and doctors say, you're probably not going to be able to do X, Y, Z, that's based on their limitations in their mind. Um, I was very fortunate. There's a lot of luck on my side that I was able to get back there, but it was also a lot of drive, determination, and picking the brains of different medical experts as to what I could do, mm. how I could strengthen it, all those sorts of things. Um, but just because I've only got 20% of an Achilles, it didn't stop me going back in and being fully operational again. And there so, were other bullets that hit me that didn't cause major damage. And yeah, yeah, we've just we've just lost Troy. I don't know. Yeah, I saw that. He's, yeah. uh, he's having he'll come bad, back in at some yeah, stage. I'm sure he'll come back. My question is, mate. Obviously, you were shot 14 times, but it took three hours before this. Obviously, that siege went for I don't 41. know. Yeah, and they said well over 4,000 rounds, 2,000 each, 2,000 for him, and 2,000 for you guys throughout that whole time. That's a lot of fucking ammunition to be spent on, you know, from both parties. Yeah, how did, yeah, absolutely. 
in regards to comp- communications, like you were sitting in a, in a corner essentially just bleeding out for three hours. Yeah, so I, when I got shot, I went, I, I got, despite those injuries, I got back to my feet and walked around the corner. Legs collapsed almost immediately. Uh, fell to my knees, crawled along my knees, fell to my hands and knees, crawled along my hands and knees, then collapsed to the ground, rolled onto my back, and, and I was right underneath the kitchen window for about three hours. Communications um, was one of my biggest stuff-ups. I was a a guy who was always big on having a radio and being in communication uh, all the time. I was the first person to experiment with a boom microphone instead of just having the radio on your head yeah, but it yeah. blaring. So I had a boom microphone and headset so that it could be covert. Uh, I was the first person to experiment with uh, voice-activated communication and used it on several jobs. Um, but on this job, it was such a rush to get into uh, in the end that I uh, I made a choice. Oh, and I've got to explain this. I've got to give you really good context, otherwise it makes me feel or, or, or seem like a, a blasé casual operator. So because I was so fixed on always trying radios, I would be in people's ears and going, hey, listen, I've got to test the radio. Can you go over there? I'll go over here. Uh, Can we see if this headset works? You know, what's it like? Blah, blah, blah. Um, And the guys that I worked with are getting pissed off. You know, they're going, oh, Derek's playing this bloody radio again. Derek's this radio, Derek radio, Derek radio. Um, And so on this job, as we're about to get out of the the car, my normal operation is that I was driving. um, I pull up. I turn the car off. I take the keys out, hook them onto my belt on a hook, and I grab the radio, and then I step out of the car all in one fluid motion. It, it's something that just, without seeing, you know, it's second nature. It's so well trained. As I went to grab the radio this time, my partner in the car thought I wasn't going to grab it, and as I've reached out to grab it, he's gone, Derek, are you going to get your radio? And in the back of my head, there's this little chip on the shoulder going, oh, everybody gives you a hard time. I thought, ah. I'll prove them I don't need to be with my radio the whole time. And I've gone, nah, small job. We'll be able to just shout to each other if we need it. I'll leave my radio there. Biggest mistake I could ever make. Um, and people say, oh, my God, do you berate yourself for that? You know, is that the biggest mistake? You know, don't you hate yourself for it? I just look at I made the best decision I could at the time with the, the information I had and the circumstances I had and when I look back, I should have made a better decision. No two ways about it. But it's the decision I made and I need to live with that and just go, I will never do that again. Yeah. And move forward with it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I was lying on the ground for three hours, no radio communication at all. Uh, the last thing the guys knew of me was that I called out, I'm hit, I'm hit. Uh, the video that... Um, you see on YouTube, mm-hmm. I have the extended version. Yep. So you will see about 50 seconds, I think it is, yeah. on video, yeah, something like that. Uh, the actual extended version goes for about seven minutes. Yep. And in that extended version, the camera operator, one of the bravest men I know, he, he's not a starry, he's not trained, he didn't have a weapon on him that day, he's a police officer, but he kept that video rolling conserved battery because he knew it was going to be extended and captured the essence of, of what it was and became absolutely crucial in court. 
Um, but that video, that extended footage, shows uh, the boys going around and finding a place of safety and strength where they could um, uh, regroup. And the sergeant is giving instructions. Call out to Derek. Find out where Derek is. And you see one of the other guys calling out to Derek. Um, I couldn't hear him. I was calling out to the boys going, I'm hit, I'm hurt, I need help. Um, they couldn't hear me. But that that extended version gives some real credibility to the fact that the boys were doing what they, they could do yep. to try and get back to me. Yep. So once they've got to you, um, obviously they start they, applying first aid. And then you, so so let's put that into context. Yeah, the boys were pinned down, um, and they had to call for backup. One of the reasons that I was on the ground for three hours is that we were the response team. If this sort of incident had happened to any member of the public or any other cop, we were the response team that would have responded, and we would have been there within forty-five minutes. It was a country location. The response team is now in trouble. So we've got to go to the backup team who are out training. So they've got to come back from training, regroup, rekit, and then get out there. Um, and they did everything they could to get there as fast as they could. And it was just a three hour delay because of logistics. The boys that I was with uh, were pinned down and it was not safe for them to move. Mm. If they moved, there was a real chance that they would have been shot and killed as well. So it sits very comfortably with me that what they would make a decision that their safety was paramount and them dying trying to get to me is pointless. Um, and so I'm very comfortable with the decision they made. Even if I had died and come back and done a review, if you can get your head around that, um, I would still be comfortable that they made the right decision to look after their safety. Yeah. No, of course, of course. So after that time, you're extracted by the paramedics. So I'm guessing paramedics turned up, Ambos turned up. Um, no paramedics would come into that scene. The uh, yep. the offender was shooting continuously for the entire three hours I was out there. Yep. Uh, even the team that came in, um, there were 13 Staries that came in. Um, they were briefed and said, we don't know whether Derek's dead or alive. You may be going in to pick up Derek. You may be going in to pick up a body. Mm. There's a real chance you may be shot and injured. You may be shot and killed. Now, part of their briefing was also, if you get shot and injured, please stay close to the truck because that makes it easy for us to get you out. You know, so, so that was factored into the briefing. Um, but they were also told that this is a reality. You may be shot and you may die. If you do not want to go in, you can make that choice now. Every one of those guys stepped up to the plate and, and came in came in under fire, um, the amount of shooting that the offender was doing, he heard the vehicle driving up, he increased the rate of uh, fire at that time. Um, and then I heard the boys coming in and they opened up on fully auto um, and it really was like the cavalry coming over the hill to save the day. Uh, and that's the scene that was running through in my mind, and I know that's the, the woke community won't be happy with that description, but that's what it was in my mind on the day. Um, and um, they risked their lives to come in and get mine. There's no two ways about it, and every one of those guys are heroes. Yep. The medical extraction team uh, didn't come in, but they actually drove to meet the truck coming to me, um, and they met and... The doctor and the um, the nurses 
operated on me in the field, in direct line of fire, bullets whizzing around their ears, their life was in real danger. One of my mates from Starry's has walked up to the doctor and said, and I say this kind of casually, he walked up to the doctor, he went to the doctor, uh, and he said to the doctor, don't worry about the bullets, don't worry about the shooter. I've got a flat vest on. Um, I'm going to stand between you and the shooter. If the bullets come this way, they'll hit me, so you'll be all right. He said he'll be all right as well because he's got the flat vest on. But that is the commitment that, you know, police look after each other. Certain yeah. stars do, but police put that thing on the line as well. Yeah, we look after each other. Yeah, of course, of course, mate. Yeah, it's something we're familiar with. Now, you're, you're getting transport, uh, transported back to the hospital, and yep. at this stage, you're, you're bleeding out. You're yeah, in, in and out of consciousness, I'm sure. Well, I was in and out of consciousness as I got to – uh, the doctor um, and having conversations with the guys that I was with, then having conversation with a nurse inside the the ambulance, um, and from there it's a uh, a blank for me until I wake up in intensive care unit. They tell they tell me that I was going in and out of consciousness, but the first doctor to get to me said that I was thirty seconds from death. I just had no blood left in my body. I was down to the last two units. Far out. Uh, body holds 10 units. I used 24 units uh, in seven hours because it was just being pumped in and, and going back out. Far out. And during this time, obviously, the siege is still going on and then eventually he surrenders, does he? Um, yeah, eventually he surrenders. The siege goes on for 41 hours. 41 um, hours. And after I'm taken out, the, the number of rounds fired um, almost stopped. Um, and uh, eventually, you know, police were negotiating with him and eventually did physical things to to knock down part of his house so that he was exposed and no longer protected, yep. and it was only then that he actually gave up. Yeah, because he was, he was in the roof cavity. I've seen a couple of Correct. pictures of yeah. him in the roof cavity, and it looks like they've just blasted that fucking wall down, so his cover and well, concealment was kind of uh, gone. It, you'll appreciate this from a military and a, a special operations perspective uh the bosses have said hey listen we need to knock a hole in the wall uh take this tractor and i want to knock a hole in the wall maybe a meter by a meter just so that we can get some gas in there if we need to blah 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 um the starry's perspective they went in and knocked down half the building um, <laughs> you know, when we do something we do it well uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> far out so um obviously that's all over now how how long's your recovery you you're in hospital you've got 14 holes to plug in yep. um you know as you said severed tendons and uh, arteries and fucking out because you, i think you got you got shot you said you got shot in the in the Achilles which <laughs> severed that as well which is you know one of the worst injuries you can almost have as well as a yeah, you know, for, yeah, for walking absolutely. how how did yeah. you go how how long was the recovery so recovery, I was in a hospital for 28 days. Um, I was um, 10 days before I took my first steps and, and I only took my first steps after 10 days because I said to the doctor, um, when will I be able to take my first steps? I want to start walking as soon as possible. When can I do it? And he said, Derek, damage to the Achilles, you're not going to be walking for at least another two and a half weeks. You have to be able to build up the strength. You have to have the flexibility. You have to do X, Y, Z. Now, I'd had some very good physios uh, coming in and working with me as well, so I'm not doing this all on my own, uh, and, you know, doctors and nurses all looking after me. But I was very fortunate also to be a gymnast when I was early, uh, when I was younger, 
And so I had flexibility that, that many of the stories go, oh, that hurts, that hurts, <laughs> the stretching that I would do. Um, but that flexibility, you know, served me well because when the doctor said, no, you won't be able to walk for two and a half weeks, I was able to go, oh, well, I've got that strength you're talking about. I've already got the flexibility. I can get my foot into that position. And the doctor just shook his head and said, well, I guess you can start walking today. Um, and as you can imagine, it was one step one day, two steps the next day, five the day after that. Um, and and literally uh, most people are amazed that I was able to walk so quickly and so well. Uh, but for me, it was about pushing myself to to get back to what I wanted to mm. do. Um, and, and it wasn't even about getting back to work or anything else. My one driver that I wanted was to be able to enjoy as much life and pleasure with my children as I possibly could. Of course, yeah. If I could possibly run, hop, skip, jump with my children, um, then that's what I wanted. Uh, some doctors were predicting that I would never, ever walk properly again because of damage to the Achilles and damage to my thigh and you know, bits and pieces. Um, and and so I kind of accepted, you know, well, that's what the experts tell me, but let's see how close I can get. And and the drive was purely to be able to enjoy life with my children. And and the better I got, the more enthused I got, the harder I pushed myself. Um, and as it turns out, you know, eventually two and a half years after the shooting, um, I made a return straight back to Starry's, fully operational, and uh, back to doing all the things that I'd loved before. It was stepped. You know, I came back to work after nine months. In fact, I came back to work after nine months against medical advice. Mm. Um, everybody's saying, why would you want to go back to work? Just sit on your bum, enjoy your life. For me, it was about I wanted to start contributing again. I wanted to be of value, sitting around on my bum, just enjoying my life, air quotes for those who can't see me, uh, enjoying my life. That's not enjoyment. That's frustration. Yes, there are things that I could do, and if that's all I could do, I would find a way to be positive in that environment, but I knew I could do more. Yeah. So I wanted to get back, and I wanted to do more. So that's why I pushed myself to go back after nine months, but it was light duties, alternate duties, and I just wanted to be able to do something. Ended up going down to the police academy and uh, and doing some training down there of cadets, giving them perspectives that, you know, uh, allowed them to see their career with more clarity, but also prepare themselves with more insight as well for the challenges that they could experience. Um, and, yeah, two and a half years later, I, uh, I returned to Starry's, so you return- operational. Yeah, so you, you returned to Starry's after one of the biggest probably shootings on a police officer here in Australia. Great, yeah. In, in history, like for, yeah. for Australia, yeah. Probably yeah. When I records, since I since yeah, well. since Ned <laughs> Kelly yeah, probably since Ned Kelly was kicking around. <laughs> how how long were you back at Star for before you decided you know to pull the pin? Um, so it was five years uh, that I went back there for. I'd been there five years, and then oh, probably six years. So I spent eleven years with Starry's all up. Um, but when I went back, I was operational for a while, and then you know I like to push myself and and do things and caused myself other injuries, so I had to take more time out from from Starry's during that period. Uh, but I was fully operational with Starry's for, for about six years afterwards yeah, uh, and then chose to leave and go back to the road and, and get a promotion to sergeant. Yep. When do you look at uh, finishing your career within the police? Um, so I served for another, oh, I don't even know how long it was after that, but um, 
let me think. I left Starry's in 2000 and I retired in 2018. So 2018? Uh, oh, shit, just recently. Yeah, it's only just three years ago, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and fully operational during that whole time. And just looking at that timeline, in 2017, Tony Douglas Grosser was released from prison and uh, placed um, – he had a, a electronically monitored as well. Uh, yeah. What's your – How's this even possible, mate? He should be in prison for the rest of his fucking life. Mate, I'm going to give you big kudos here for the amount of research you've done. You've, you've done it well. Um, sorry, and, and now I've forgotten. What was your question there? Uh, look, what's your thoughts on that, mate? Like, you know, he's, he's – Okay. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. And, it's, and that's a great question because uh, as soon as he was convicted and it took us five years essentially to get him finally convicted – and as soon as he was finally convicted, given 22 years jail, 18 years non-parole, um, right back at the beginning of his sentence, people were saying to me, Derek, how are you going to feel when he's released mm. in 22 years' time? And it's like, well, I'm going to think about that when it's closer to the day because there are so many factors that could influence it. What's he going to do while he's in jail? Is he going to repent? Is he going to... Uh, become a different person? Is he going to stay the same person? What what, what are his behaviours and what's his psychology just prior to being released? If I was to start worrying about what it's going to be like immediately, then that's where I'd live my life, mm. in fear that whole time. While he's in jail, um, I do not have anything to worry about, so I'm just going to enjoy my life and wait until I get the intelligence reports on his behaviours and his actions. Um and uh, and then as it came closer to his release, I started having briefings from our intelligence section, from psychologists as to what his behaviours are like and, and some of the insights that I had from people that I know that were prison guards that had been, you know, working with him. Um, and for me, it was about assessing the danger. Was he still a danger to me? Um, and that's put into perspective in many different ways. Part of it was his psychology, um, and he hadn't changed. He was exactly the same person. Uh, he hadn't accepted responsibility for the fact that he had shot me. He, had nev- he has never admitted he's the one that shot me. <laughs> he's tried to blame other people. He had his wife in the house at the time. He said, oh, well, I shot near him, but my- I think my wife actually shot him, uh, and if it wasn't my wife, I think it was his starry's mates because they hated him, so... He was trying to blame yeah. anybody yeah. and everybody. Um, so he'd never accepted responsibility for it. But I also know that from analysing the stories that I'd heard from his time in prison, he's a coward. He doesn't do anything proactively of violence unless he gets cornered. And so he's he's not a brave person. The chances of him coming and wanting revenge or retribution uh, are minimal. Mm. Um, and so I describe it that 70% of my mind is quite happy that he's of no risk to me, um, but 30% of my mind, it, in fact, I'm, let me say it's 85% of my mind is quite relaxed and about 15% um, is don't be complacent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can never be complacent. That's... Always always be vigilant. Exactly. Mate, complacency yep. kills. But but don't let it overwhelm me and don't let it intimidate the rest of my life. Yeah, of course. Live for life, yep. but be aware of what those risks are. Always be aware of the risks Yeah, and manage the risks. Um, what I worry about most is that um, if he gets into the same environment as my children, 
I feel like he would want to get into my children's face and say, mm. hey, I'm the guy who shot your dad. I want to tell you my story and just intimidate them. So I've had that conversation with my children and, and prepared them mentally, emotionally for what they can expect and what things they can do. Um, and certainly we've got other things in place to be able to manage that as well. Yeah, of course. How old are your kids now? Uh, my kids, uh, I have uh, four children. My two biological children are 30 and 32. Yep. And I have two stepchildren. Uh, I'm not married to their mother anymore, but they're still close to me. Uh, and they are 50 and 48. Yeah, right. Far out. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah. I'm just reading uh, the news, obviously from that that era of 2017, and yeah, far out. Fuck, I don't know how I'd feel, mate. I don't. Actually, I do know how I feel. I'm the, I'm 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 a revenge type of person. So, <laughs> well, see, that's that's I'm another thing that people that's another thing people ask me about, and and I really enjoy talking about. People say, "Do you want revenge? Do you want retribution? Would you like to pay him back?" And as much as I went through a, a very short period where, and, and I know this because I used to write a journal of my emotions and thoughts and things that I was going through just so that I've got a record of it, and there is one paragraph which is pure, vicious, venomous hatred for him, and if I'd met him at that time, I probably would have done something nasty. No two ways about it. Yeah. I don't shy away from it, um, but I don't want it now, mm. Right. And part of that is taking responsibility for my actions and my consequences and my future. Um, I made a choice to go into police, into stories. I made a choice to go to that job. I made a choice to go down the side of the house. So I made choices that put me in a place where he had the opportunity to shoot me. I need to take responsibility for those actions. Um, If I then lived in a space where I want to get him back, I want revenge, then, you know, I'd like to think if I want something to happen, I'm the sort of person that would make it happen. Yeah. And if I focused on that, then I wouldn't be living the rest of my life. Yeah. Right. And I wouldn't have enjoyed my life with my children. I wouldn't have been able to focus on my rehabilitation. I wouldn't have focused on building my business now. Um, And the other side of that, and the really important side of that, is if I had exacted retribution and found some way to pay him back, what sort of person would that make me? Yeah, just like it you. would make me exactly the same yeah, as him. Exactly. I don't want no, to do no, that. No fair call, mate. You're you're a better man than me, <laughs> <laughs> mate. We've been talking for a good hour and twenty minutes, mate, and it's just been absolutely just insightful. Like it's it's not often you talk to someone that's been shot that many times and. You know, live live to tell the story. Incredible, absolutely, just crazy, crazy story. I don't know where Troy is. I'm sure he's into it. It's a privilege to be on your podcast and and to be given the attention you're giving me. And I thank you for that. What you guys are doing in this podcast is great. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where Troy is. He's obviously still having internet. He's he's had internet issues. Or I don't know something going on with his MBN. It's terrible. Brisbane, mate. Brisbane. I'm to South Australia, buddy. <laughs> yeah, mate. We all that wine. I'm in the Hunter Valley, Newcastle, so I'm used to the wine as well. We're, yeah, we're, we're lovely nice and close. area, mate. We've got uh, three final questions. The first question is, you know, what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on? You know, take stuff to the next level. Again, let's just look at your your life as a as a kid growing up. You were the kid that got picked on, pretty much had nothing going for you, and then you decided, you know what, I'm gonna. Uh, do a, a complete 180, join the police of all things, and you ended up in the star, which is not just, you know, 
it's not just being a general duties police officer. You're taking shit to the next level, to the you know to the best abilities of the police, which is the star group. So, what advice can you give to people to you know complete their goals? Uh, listen, I honestly think you know there are two things that I want to talk about here, and it's it's the five drivers for success, and I'll, I'll be really brief. Five drivers for success, and then those four levels of responsibility again. Uh, the five drivers always maintain a sense of optimism, always know that there is something better out there. And if you're prepared to chase it, you can get it if you really want to put in the hard work. Uh, the second driver is believe in your ability to influence your environment. Um, third one is have meaning. In whatever you do, have meaning. When you're just sitting around waiting for someone else to come up with an idea, or waiting for something to happen, then you're... Uh, you're just going to waste away. So find something of meaning, something that's important to you. And that's when I talk about I love stories, but I love people who see meaning and being an accountant or a lawyer or whatever it is, have meaning that is meaningful to you. Uh, the fourth driver is have a plan, just some idea of what you're going to deal with, some idea of how you're going to deal with it. And it's just the absolute basics that you start with. The greater the risk, the greater the plan, but just have that some idea of what mm. you're going to deal with rather than living in denial or oh, I hope I'm going to be lucky type attitude. Uh, and the fifth and final and maybe sometimes the most important driver and, and certainly for the people who are dealing with injuries, whether it's physical or mental, is be prepared to throw your hand in the air and say, hey, listen, I need a hand. I need some support. Uh, and support is that fifth driver uh, because people want to help us, but they can't help us unless we actually ask for it, exactly. we put it out there. Yeah, right. So that's, that's what I, I ask as the five drivers. And and I'll go back to those uh, areas of responsibility. Take responsibility for our choices. Take responsibility for our behaviour. Take responsibility for consequence. And then take responsibility for the future afterwards. Now, when I talk about taking responsibility for consequence, most of that conversation is generally around, we've had a negative consequence, let's analyse that. I encourage people to take responsibility for the positive consequence as well, right? Because when we take responsibility for what we did to create good things in our lives, we can repeat that. And this is when I looked at that incident at Jeps Cross where I put my thumb between the gun and the hammer to stop it firing. I started analysing that. What did I do? How did I stay uh, calm of mind during that process? Analyze what I did well, and I took that forward with me, and that's what prepared me for being able to deal with being shot 14 times. Um, but we've got to take responsibility for those four areas well and truly before we make that final choice to take the action. So take a look at it. What choice am I making? What are the behaviours required? What are the consequences that could happen, both good and bad? And what's the future afterwards and think about that even before you make that final choice. Yeah, that's uh, take note, listeners. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Mate, you. Um, second question: What is the plans for the future? Mate, um, what are you doing now? You're keen. You're a keynote speaker. Yeah, I speak at conferences and and run training seminars. Um, and the training seminars are essentially about get your head in the game, uh, and it's the game you want to play, whatever that game is. Uh, whether it's heading into retirement, that's a game we need to learn how to play or whether you're building your business, whether you're going into the forces, whether you want to be an elite athlete, it's about get your head in the game. Yeah. Uh, and I build it on the basis of what I call human durability. And human durability is going beyond resilience to sustainable, optimal performance. Right, Optimal performance is the very best you can possibly do in the given environment. 
Lots of people look at peak performance. How do I get to peak performance and how do I sustain that? When the environment changes, you can't sustain peak, right? I was a peak performer. I was a starry. I was one of the best in the police department, physically and operationally. When I got shot, peak performance was nowhere to be seen. Yeah. I had to have some anticipation. This is some idea of what I'm going to deal with, some idea of how I was going to deal with it. I had to have some anticipation that if I get shot, my performance is going to plummet, but what would be optimal performance in those circumstances to keep me going so that I can get back to assistance and then start building again, right? So let's look at uh, going beyond resilience, waiting to see what happens and then trying to bounce back to what's optimal performance that will sustain us so that we can get to the point where we can put growth into place. Yeah, gotcha. Sustainable, optimal performance. Uh, And that's what I talk about now. Yeah. And I talk about that with kids in schools as young as 10, all the way through to the RAAF fighter pilots, hairdressers, tradies, bankers, finance, lawyers, doctors, and I love it. I just love it. I love sharing the story, but it's the insights that help people grow in their own life. Yeah, I just love it. exactly, mate. And that's the whole reason why we do this podcast is share stories like your and, uh, you know, get um, messages just like that that can uh, help that one. You know, just helping that one person is uh, our goal. Yeah, yeah. Mate. Uh, and, and, you know, Matt, I'm going to give you a perspective because I listen to a lot of things um, and, and have different perspectives. You just said if I can help one person, that makes a difference. I would like to think that if we were only going to help one person – then our efforts are wasted because we could have a greater effect on a lot more people. And if it's only one person we can help, we've got to find a different way of doing it. And what you're doing is going to help a lot more than just one. Oh yeah, no, most definitely. Most definitely. It's it. And it has, you know, we, we do get a lot of messages through our social media about uh, how it helps people. Not even that, just the young people that are coming through now want to join the police. You know, they get that little bit more motivation or experience from someone like yourself um, and it helps them breeze through the process rather than for us. You know, a lot of us is like yourself, mate. You had no idea what Star Wars. You just thought, fuck it, I'll, I'll do it. You know what I mean? And I was the same, mate. I had no idea what the military was, but I just did it. And it's always good to hear people's perspectives and experience, uh, but if, you know, before you join things, it makes things a lot easier, especially for the mental side of things. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge. The physical is one thing, but that mental the better prepared we are, the better we'll be able to handle it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mate, now the third question is um, what guilty pleasures do you have? Tell us something that people don't know about you. Now, for a couple of previous guests we've had on, you know, we've had hardened SAS operators or uh, two commando operators. One of our, one of the two commando boys told us that he likes to have late-night cheesecake and ice cream. And another SAS operator, his dog was his uh, guilty pleasure. You know, he'd look after the dog more than he looks after his wife and kids. What do you got, mate? Well, interestingly, because I talk about uh, two different styles of resilience, one is functional resilience and one is aspirational resilience. And in the functional resilience, uh, the fifth thing is guilt-free indulgence. Yep, exactly. So I absolutely embrace this. Uh, And one of the things that I like to tell people is, um, and your international listeners may not know this biscuit, but it's a Tim Tam, which is just (laughs) the absolute indulgence of chocolate and crispy biscuit and and melting in your mouth. Uh, And I can say that when I open a packet of Tim Tams, I can generally stop at two packets. (laughs) And that's my guilty indulgence. But, But I know that I'm going to eat that 
and then go and do the work to burn it off. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, on a Saturday morning, I'll ride my, my push bike uh, 100 kilometres with, with mates. Yeah. Uh, I'm just off to, uh, on the 13th of October, I leave Australia for the Himalayas to go mountain biking up yeah. to 1,500 metres. So the guilt-free indulgence, absolutely love it. One of the other things that I, I love, which surprises some people, is growing flowers. Yeah, right. I love planting flowers yep. and growing flowers um, and vegetables. Absolutely love it. Yeah. People go, hang on, you're a tough starry. What, what are you doing growing flowers? I, it was one of the things that I did in my rehabilitation because that's all I could do, mm. right? I could spend some time in the garden, and I just saw these flowers grow, and there was such pleasure that came out of it. So. That's one of the ones that yeah, I don't mate, tell yeah. too many people, but I'm not shy about it either. Yep, mate, I'm, I'm the same with veggies, mate. I'm, I'm, I'm all, all down about that and uh, growing herbs as well. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. I haven't been very good at growing herbs. I haven't mastered that yet, but yeah. my daughter does it amazingly. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Just quickly, well, let's quickly touch on this Himalayas trip. Now, you did send an email, um, your email earlier, and you wanted to talk about it. So you're going to be riding a mountain bike in the Himalayas, obviously at a height of about 5.5K. Up and what's this for? Is this uh, for a charity pleasure. or is it? No, it's just pleasure. Just, just pleasure. Um, and, and I came across it because one of my mates that I ran into um, said, Hey, Derek, I'm going on this bike ride, um, you know, up to the Himalayas, uh, up to 5,500, which is above Everest Base Camp. And they said, You should come along. And I've just gone, Yeah, okay, let's do it. And that's it. There's as much thought as went into it, knowing that I've got, you know, a, a good bike. Uh, history behind me. Um, so, yeah, it, it is just for fun. Um, but it's it's also a statement to people with big injuries that, you know, I've, I've still only got 20% of an Achilles tendon. Yeah. I've got 30% of the muscle missing in my left thigh. Uh, I've got 45 centimetres of bowel missing from my stomach, um, and I'm still out there and pushing the boundaries of what I can do. Now, I can do these things. Other people may not be able to do the same as I can, but we've just got to keep on pushing those boundaries and stretching ourselves to find out where we can and what we can't do. And and going up to 5,500, from being down in the dust and literally 30 seconds from death on the ground to then riding at 5,500 metres, it, it just it pleases me. <laughs> That's just not. That's not normal. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't do it, mate. No chance. Yeah, Far I actually out. get that response from a lot of people. <laughs> oh yeah, I love my physical activity, but riding a mountain bike in the Himalayas not for me. Not for me. But that's, it's my uh, passion. Yeah, mate. It's that's that's passion. awesome. Yeah. Def, mate, definitely get a whole bunch of photos and send us a couple because I'll definitely uh, add them up on our uh, socials. Yeah, legendary. Thanks for that, mate. Uh, again, it's been absolutely just incredible to have a chat with you. Again, we're, we're, I listened to your podcast with the boys on the Combat Ready podcast, and I wanted to hear this story firsthand, which is the reason why I reached out, because, again, it's not normal you speak to someone that's been shot 14 times and survived to tell the story about it. It's not – it's an incredible resilience. If that's not resilience, I don't know what is, but that's, yeah, that's resilience. Right. Mate, um, again, yeah – appreciate it mate and uh we'll definitely stay in touch you know i don't get down to adelaide too much but i do for a little bit for work and i'd love to catch up mate and have a have a brew yeah mate absolutely and uh yeah mate i don't know where troy is obviously he sent me a text he said his internet's uh having as i said he can drop 500 pound bombs on people's foreheads but <laughs> when it comes to technology it's just next next level so mate again thank you and uh stay in touch 
Mate, look forward to it. And uh, when you get over here, love to catch up. Um, I may come to Newcastle sometime in the near future. Yeah, I'm sure you will, mate. Yeah. Contact. Yeah, yeah reach out. Mate, thanks and, again. Uh, and thank Troy on my behalf. Of course, mate. Appreciate it. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.